Hello, and welcome to the Script Describes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. We're here today at The Nook in Encino to chat with a TV writer, producer, and showrunner whose work includes CSI New York, Revolution, CW's The Messengers, and premiering March 31st on CBS, Rush Hour. His first writing credits include the Disney Channel's Timon and Pumba, <laughs> and the feature I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. He's also a professor at my alma mater, USC School of Cinematic Arts. I'm very pleased to have on the show Mr. Trey Calloway. Hello. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Kevin. Um, you've got the coolest name ever, by the way. Just no. sounds cool. <laughs> uh, sci-fi uh, action hero. Well, we can thank my parents, Bob and Fran, for that. The story goes that they, uh, having names like Bob and Fran, they were just trying to think a little outside of the box and do something different. So <laughs> that's how I became me. Um, okay, first things first. Uh, we always ask how you got your start in the business, what sort of inspired you to want to work in the entertainment industry. Right. Um, so maybe you can give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, uh, you know, I grew up in, uh, in the heart of the heartland in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, was born and raised there. And I would say there were three primary factors to me wanting to, uh, to wind up sitting where I'm sitting right now. Um, one was the fact that my parents uh, were, were storytellers themselves, both talented writers and both working in the advertising business. And so I was sort of raised in, uh, in a creative environment to begin with. Um, my dad directed a lot of television commercials and, and so I would you know, either be in them sometimes or just be around them. And so I, I uh, became quickly acquainted with and, and fond of you know, uh, uh, that's sort of the power of, of storytelling in that really brief commercial form. And um, so that was, that was a, a contributing factor. And then, and then like uh, probably uh, virtually everyone else you've ever interviewed on this podcast uh, in the summer of 1977, I uh, used all of my lawn mowing money from the neighbors and, uh, and stood in line 11 times at the Fox Theater in Tulsa to see Star Wars. And um, by the time I walked out of my 11th uh, screening, I, I knew, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell stories uh, on the screen. And so then I, I tried to tell stories every other way I could think of, you know, whether it was school plays or short stories or poetry or, you know, uh, writing uh, plays for myself. Uh, I just kept, you know, uh, trying to flex those creative muscles. And then during my, I guess my junior year of high school, Hollywood came to Tulsa. So. Um, Specifically, what I'm talking about is Francis Ford Coppola, who directed the film The Outsiders there in my hometown. And I went and auditioned with everybody else in town, and I got a bit part as a social concession stand, and I got a close-up and a, and a line and, you know, a few scenes uh, throughout the film. And it was the kind of experience that just left me completely wide-eyed and inspired. And when Hollywood then left Tulsa, <laughs> when, right. when Coppola packed up his gear and the cast and everybody that was associated with that film left, I knew I had to follow them somehow. And, uh, and so ultimately I applied to the USC uh, School of Cinematic Arts and, and that's what first brought me out west. It was uh, four years of film school at SC and, um, and I haven't looked back. I, like, as you said, I've been teaching there for the past 10 years as well, so I've kind of come full circle on that whole experience and seen it from both sides. But that's what first brought me out to the West Coast to try and start a career as a writer. And um, how did you get your first job in the production side? Obviously, you on the outsiders in a different capacity. Yeah. Um, good question. You know, first of all, I had a lot of... I was not one of those students who went to SC on my parents' credit cards. I went, I worked four jobs to be there and took out every kind of student loan imaginable. So I had to pay those loans off. And uh, one of the ways I did that was by working for uh, a local advertising agency, first as a copywriter and then ultimately as a creative director, which was a really uh, important experience for me 
I didn't know it at the time, but it was a really important experience for me, uh, mostly because what I was doing was writing and producing radio and TV commercials uh, for television shows and movies, so a lot of broadcast promotion work and theatrical trailer work. Uh, and then I started a freelance company writing taglines and trailers for movies. So, you know, uh, I wrote the tagline for Home Alone, the family comedy without the family, and Home Alone 2, he's up past his bedtime in the city that never sleeps, and that kind of stuff, you know, just... And, and what it was was a great exposure to uh, how films are marketed, how television shows are marketed. Not that, not that you want to... Uh, only begin a story from that place, but it's always good to have somewhere in your creative tool set, you know, your own equivalent of a marketing executive right. who helps you think about what's going to make people want to see this film or this television show. But it also paid for my school bills, and uh, ultimately I kept writing on the side, and like many people in Hollywood who tell some version of this tale, I sold my first script to the Cormans. Uh, instead of Roger Corman, this was his brother Gene, and uh, it was an original feature idea that I sold him. Uh, that, you know, as I look back on it, I was paid very little to write, <laughs> but I didn't care. I just wanted to, uh, to be officially quote unquote a writer, and, and I was at least, I, was, I don't know if it was smart or just smart aleck enough at that point to, to suggest to Gene, hey, uh, yes, I'll take whatever you pay me to write this script. Mm -hmm. If, when it's finished, if you like it, will you help me get an agent? And uh, and that's how I wound up with my first agent, who uh, I had no business being represented by, but he was an amazing guy named Ron Mardigian, who was the head of Worldwide Lit at the time at William Morris. So, you know, I, 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 I sort of won a little lottery there and, right. and wound up with some really tremendous representation that... that really officially jump-started my career. That's great. And then worked mostly in, in features for the first eight, nine years of my career mm -hmm. until suddenly the planets aligned and I and I wound up in television and, and have continued working back and forth in both mediums ever since. Right. Um, and having worked in both mediums and seen sort of the development budgets of features shrunk considerably, mm -hmm. and the television number of television outlets with cable expand yeah. so greatly. And sort of this is sort of the golden age of television, really, or a second golden age. Yeah. Um, how does that affect you as a writer in terms of like what you're not asked to do by your representation, but in terms of like I'm making business decisions? You obviously work a lot in television constantly. But is there any sort of desire or to write a, a feature or, or develop something? Or is it just like, I have no time, TV is my, my path at this point, and okay, I'll go back well, to it at some point? I mean, look, to a certain extent, I could be fairly accused of being a grass is always greener sort. Sure. Uh, so sure. when I'm working in one, I, you know, I'm always at least interested in the, in the other. Um, and I love writing features. It's a, it's a, it's a really rewarding process, at least creatively. Um, but it is that business uh, has has changed quite a bit, as you correctly suggest. And so, um, if you if you want to enjoy any, generally speaking, if you want to enjoy any semblance of quote unquote job security, <laughs> those are all lowercase letters. <laughs> right. Uh, as a writer in Hollywood, uh, television. Uh, is, is the way to go, and has certainly. But beyond that, okay, I'll 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 admit to being grass is always greener. But really, if you held a gun to my head and said pick one, I would pick television. Um, purely on the basis of my experience working in it alone, you know, it's it's it is so intensely creatively rewarding. Uh, I'm also extremely fond of the pace involved. Right. You know, anywhere you can come up with an idea and roughly two, three months later, a few million people can be watching it. Right, absolutely. That, that, that becomes a creative sort of crack. <laughs> you know, you really, you can't get enough of it once you've, once you've tasted it. And, I, and so that's, that paired with just the, 
I mean, look, we all know that features still tend to be the director's medium, and the director is the auteur, the film by a guy or girl, and and in television, it's still uh, the writer's medium, and and you know, I I will always remember. You know, I have three kids, and they've all been on set a variety of times over the years. But I remember my youngest at one point being on set with me, and he knew he certainly knew what a writer does. Sure. He'd even seen my scripts in certain cases, but he didn't really he hadn't wrapped his head around what a producer does. Right. And um, so he was sitting on set with me at one point, and uh, a wardrobe supervisor came over and wanted me to choose between a couple of different jackets and a couple of different changes for one of the cast members. So I was clear about, I want this jacket, let's go with these shoes, you know, the kinds of things that I do every day and, and in addition to the writing. And, and when, when that little interaction was finished, my son leaned in and he said, I get it. I said, what do you mean? He said, I get what you do, you make decisions. Right. And <laughs> it was a sweet moment between us, but but in truth, that is what I love the most. Uh, I love the writing. I'll always love the writing, but I, I love producing television and and having that opportunity to make those creative choices in so many different ways. And I also love the collaborative aspect of it. I, that's one of my favorite things in every show I've ever worked on is sitting down for what's called a, a concepts meeting is the first sort of introductory meeting to an episode of whatever show it is. And in that concepts meeting, you're surrounded at a big conference table by all of the various department heads. Makeup, hair, wardrobe, visual effects, special effects, transpo, production design, like everybody who you know represents all of these different creative exploits. And what I love so much about that meeting is looking around and recognizing that everyone at that table is a storyteller. They're all drawing from a different palette, but they're all there to help you tell a story. And without them, you can't tell your story. It may start with your pages, but they're just pages and never get to the stage without these brilliantly talented people. That's one of my favorite moments in, in not just in television, but just in my career, is sort of that recognition uh, of the fact that when you when you work as a television writer or producer, you you are a part of this intensely creative community, and it's it's like I said, it's just it's tr tremendously rewarding experience. Well, that brings up another question that that I had um, for television writing and producing, because when you become a senior writer, you become a producer, mm -hmm. you take on more. But even lower level writers can often be asked to go to set and do things. Sure, sure. But it, there's actual producing involved, meaning a lot of interactions with different departments. Whereas for a feature writer, oftentimes they aren't producers, or even right. if they are, they can help in the development, maybe in pre-production, but oftentimes not even. It's because they're a big name writer yeah. that they get a producer credit. I'm not saying they're all like that, but yeah, you know, of course. Oftentimes. So feature writing is often believed to be sort of an introvert's version of writing. You mm -hmm. get notes, you sit in a couple meetings, and you go off for a couple months and write your draft or right. revise your draft. Right. Whereas in TV, you're constantly sitting in a writing room collaborating with other writers <coughs> mm -hmm. um, and going to set. How much, how much of, I don't know if I'm phrasing this correctly, how much people skills do aspiring TV writers have to have versus like if they don't have yeah. people skills as they should they care for themselves. I think I think it's extremely important. Uh, I talk about this a lot in my uh, USC class, pitching 101, which is about helping students, you know, get reacquainted with their verbal storytelling skills. They've generally spent four years, you know, in front of a computer typing, sure. and writers, you know, not traditionally the most outgoing <laughs> or extroverted people in the world, and right. that's fine. They put all that energy into the page, but the dirty secret no one tells you usually in this business that you usually have to learn the hard way is that you spend 80% of your time talking like you and I are doing right now in order to get that chance to, to go sit down and write. And so those people skills are super important, not just in terms of your ability to 
quickly encapsulate the essence of your story or share it with somebody, whether it's in a writer's room or in some producer or executive's office, but also your ability to sort of quickly distill the essence of yourself, you know, in general meetings or whatever. I mean, we all, <clears throat> we're all complex individuals. We all have many shiny objects that uh, make up our personal histories, but you know, um, there's a there's a performance aspect to meeting people in this business uh, that's filled with so many type A people who are all you know we're all bigger fish in smaller ponds usually and have come here to to try and make it in their version of the business and and so you know you have to sort of get tapped in as early as possible in your career with how to how to rise above that din um, you know how to distinguish yourself in somebody's company how to how to not just make what you've written memorable, but you know, uh, make sure that the way you present yourself measures up to that to a certain degree. And I think often when it comes to staffing television, you know, by the time to be to be honest, by the time I'm sitting down to meet with a prospective writer for a staffing position on a show. I've already, they're only there because I've already I've already read them. I've already read samples that have impressed me. Uh, they've also already been vetted by a studio or a network. There's usually somebody uh, in a position of power who's stumping for them, you know, and and so they're there for a reason. Um, but what that meeting is really about, on many levels, is me trying to suss out. Okay, they're talented, but do I want to spend eight hours a day in a room with them? Right. You know, it's a little bit of a personality contest. Sure. But it's not just me. It's also I. I know, ideally, some of the other key figures I'm going to hire, and I know what their personalities are like. So I have to put together, you know, sort of a, for lack of a better way to put it, a court-appointed family. <laughs> you know, okay. I have to put together a group of people who who all have unique skill sets, who all, you know, are going to bring something powerfully creative to the table, but also have to sit at that table together for long periods of time. Right. And so that that is where the, the people skills become very important, you know, and, and sometimes you do it through experience, hopefully sometimes you can do it through instruction from your peers and mentors or whatever, but, you know, as important as it is as a, as a writer starting out to, you know, to prove it on the page on a regular basis, it's also equally important to play well with others, you know, because the other thing that I say often to my students is having, again, having come from a legitimately small town of Tulsa in comparison to Los Angeles, uh, I know what a small town is, but I always say there's no smaller town than the entertainment industry. Right. You, you wind up crossing paths with everybody eventually Absolutely. and usually working with everybody or for everybody right. and uh, so the more you can sort of in addition to honing your craft on the page the more you can also you know work on and hopefully improve your people skills and your ability and willingness to collaborate with others and and uh, the, the better off I think you're going to be career wise Absolutely. Um, and Talking about USC and thing, you teach a pitching class. Um, obviously, a lot of our listeners listen from around the country and right. around the world, can't come to Pitching 101. <laughs> uh, what are some basic things that uh, a writer going into their first pitch can do or should know right. before stepping into that room? What advice do you have? Uh, okay. Uh, let's see if I can distill, <laughs> pitch my class. <laughs> I'll distill 16 weeks into uh, two minutes here. Um, you know, uh, first and foremost, uh, nobody nobody knows your story better than you. Uh, that's a good thing. On the positive side, that's a good thing because if you're doing your job correctly in a pitch, you are making your passion for that project abundantly clear. Right? Because keep in mind, producers and executives, people who are empowered to listen to pitches and make decisions about them, you know, they they don't they don't want you to fail. Right. It's it's awkward for them when you uh, when you tank a pitch, uh, and frankly, they need you. So one of the first things I, I try and get young writers to drill into their heads when they're first starting out is uh, 
you wouldn't have this meeting, this pitch meeting, whether or not they buy your project. Right. You wouldn't have this meeting if they didn't need you. If they could tell the story on their own and write it and produce it, they would. But they can't. They need you. Right. So at least give yourself, even if you're just starting out and you're humble and you're terrified and you're, you know, riddled with insecurity, by the way, none of which goes away. <laughs> um, even if you're experiencing all those things, you have to at least steal yourself by reminding yourself, they need me. On some level, they need me. I'm a storyteller. Um, so then you go in and you communicate that passion for your story. I think a, a common pitfall for people first starting out and pitching, though, is being too precious about what they're pitching. Um, you know, this happens even more so when, when you're pitching something that maybe you've already written. And there the tendency is to pitch every single detail, right? right. And my, the truth is my, my 18-year-old daughter can, can tell you in impressive detail every beat of the last episode of Scandal she watched. Right. But that's, that's a story meeting. That's not a pitch, right? So the challenge for someone who's already written something is to really get up at 30,000 feet and distill the essence of that idea. Don't give me every beat. I don't have time for that. I don't have the interest in that. I want you to give me the aerial view of the kind of an experience you want me to have. Um, conversely, as often is the case in, in television, you may not have written the project yet. You may have done the research, you may have done an outline, you may have put all the characters together, but you're still essentially selling a car that hasn't been constructed yet. <laughs> right. Right? Right, right. Um, and in that case, that's where the 30,000 foot aerial view is helpful sure. to you because it, it can also help you gloss over areas that you haven't committed to yet as a storyteller, that you haven't completely, you haven't dotted every I and crossed every T. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of hopefully helpful hints there. Um, you know, and, and I think ultimately it's also about, and this is where the people skills come in, reading your audience really carefully. You go into that room, you have to assume that whoever you're pitching to has heard several other pitches earlier in the day, right? And, and so your, your job is to tell them an exciting or frightening or hysterical or moving story, yes. But your job is also to read them like you would anybody across the table, you know? Watch, watch their body language, you know? If they seem distracted, they are, you know? Um, <laughs> It's it's all the obvious first date rules <laughs> that you gotcha. would you would be hyper attentive to if you were sitting across a white linen table from somebody for the first time. Although that might be a bit fancy for a first date, but point is, you know, read that room, watch watch who you're pitching to. You can tell when someone's engaged, and usually the more engaged you are, the more engaged they are. Sure, you don't ever want to go too far. I had one student pitch me a a, a martial arts movie at one point, and. He got so excited, he stood up and did a full roundhouse kick that came about a half an inch from hitting my face. That would be an example of going too far. <laughs> Don't go there, but you know, definitely communicate your, your unbridled enthusiasm and passion, because there's no one better. You need to at least think, in addition to saying to yourself, they need me, you also need to say to yourself, there is no one better in the world to tell this story in this moment. Right. And uh, those, are, those are the kinds of ways that you can sort of steal your confidence walking into a room. That's great. And confidence is huge. Huge. If, if, if you don't have the passion for material, the material, and it doesn't show, right. then they're not going to have they're, it. They're not, because honestly, it's easy for them to say no. Sure. It's easy for an executive to say no. It's much harder for them to say yes, because why? Once they say yes, they put themselves on the line, right? Then they have their own bosses to answer to. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you, you, one of the quickest reasons to give them to say no is to, is to not be confident in your presentation or material, which is another helpful hint, hopefully, is that if you're not ready, you're not ready. Yeah. If you don't know it better than anyone else, don't pitch it. Right. Right? Work it out in your head, know it backward and forward, um, but also when I say know it, I, I'm talking more about, I'm, I'm talking less about rote memorization. Because nobody wants to be read to. No. You know, you're not going to buy a timeshare from a salesman who's reading from a script. Right. Right. Or you can tell. It's, yeah. <laughs> you can tell. Memorized. Um, uh, you hang up on those people. Absolutely. But, but 
it's so it's a matter of knowing it, but then internalizing it so that you can keep it conversational. Because the the the, the quality of a pitch that's almost always the most successful is the one where you that taps directly into the age old you know, uh, uh, time-tested process of telling stories around a campfire, you know, or sitting in a coffee shop, or sitting at the Nook and Encino, right. across the table from somebody, and, and and approaching it like, oh my God, you're not gonna believe this story. Right. right. Right? And that's when people click in, that's when they engage, that's when they listen, and that's when you usually, you know, if you don't sell it in the room, you'll sell it shortly thereafter, if you can keep it on that level of compelling conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's all good advice. Um, now, jumping back to our topic of staffing season. Um, staffing season is coming up, having been a showrunner many times. Um, what are some of the things new writers should be preparing for their, their, their interviews? Obviously, like you had mentioned, they're there because you've already read their writing, so they don't need to necessarily sell you on their writing ability, per mm -hmm. se. Um, but you know, what are some of the questions that someone like yourself, a showrunner, will be asking them? Um, again, I'm sure it differs from season to season sure. and from uh, show to show based on what you need in that room. Like you said, it's like putting a puzzle together. Mm -hmm. sort of. um, but what are some of the things that you look for in for staff writers? Uh, you know, well, one of the first things I want to feel and this can be tricky sometimes uh, because, <laughs> to go back to the dating metaphor, it's a lot like having to have a lot of first dates in a short period of time. Right. And uh, and you're trying, you're trying like hell to impress each of them, right. and and to make them feel on some level that there's no one else, <laughs> you know. So there's a little bit of that kind of showmanship. But what makes that process easier for I think a writer is when you really do your homework early on before you've even been sent on meetings, do your homework on reading all the pilots and really isolate a strong list of these are the ones that speak to me. These are the ones that I, I not only think I have a grasp of, but I have a passion for. Like, I want to sit in a room eight hours a day and tell this story. Then have that list ready for when your agent or manager inevitably asks, what have you read that you like? Be ready to say, this is what this is what I want. These are the stories that I want to tell. I mean, that was definitely the case for me just coming off of our first season of Rush Hour. You know, I had, between Revolution and, uh, and The Messengers, both experiences which I loved, I'd still had two solid years of apocalyptic doom and gloom, right? right. And right. So, so I needed to laugh a little bit. And the minute I read the pilot for Rush Hour and laughed out loud a dozen times, I was like, that's it. I want that. I physically, emotionally need that. <laughs> um, and I, you know, uh, wasted no time in communicating that to my reps. And it's the same is true for anybody just starting out even as a staff writer. Know what you're excited about. Because again, it's going to help keep yourself authentic. Uh, and it's, it, it will enable you to communicate that passion uh, in a much more convincing way. You know, then, you know, you're going into to these meetings and you want to A, communicate that passion. You know, don't be afraid to tell somebody what you love about their pilot. Everyone likes to hear that. You know, it's, it's not, and, and, and if you're that legitimately excited about it, you're, you're, you're not, it's not BS, right? You're, you're really telling someone what you like and they put the hard sweat and sleepless nights into executing it. So they deserve some props. Sure, sure. Um, let them know what you like. You know, also then, and I'm a big believer in accentuating the positive, it's just the way I choose to live my life, but it's also the way I do business. You, you let them know then, on the basis of what you like so much about it, let them know why you like it in terms of specifically what you think you can bring to the table. Mm -hmm. The reason I like this so much is because I've always had a knack for it. I've always had a love or an affinity for it this, that, or the other aspect of it. Right? This is something that I think I do particularly well. You know, and it's, it's, again, it's not always easy for writers to toot their own horns. We're, we're not, by definition, actors, you know, or performers, but, but it's really important that you make those impressions upon someone who's in that 
position of deciding whether or not they want to invite you to the table. Right. Let them know what you like about what they've done. Let them know how you think you can make their job easier. What skill set you have that you can bring to the table uniquely that will not only make their job easier, but ultimately make it so that they feel like they can't do the job without you. Right. Like that you become a critical part of that storytelling. Right. Um, it's all about passion, man. It's all about, it's, it's, it's not being afraid to, to tell someone what you like, tell them what you think you can do, tell them how you think you can help. And then everything else is beyond your control. But when you walk out of the room, at least you know, you know, you swung for the fences in terms of communicating your passion. Right. That's great. That's great to hear. Passion is super important mm -hmm. you do it if you don't have it. <clears throat> um, we do like to emphasize that because so many, not so many, but there are a lot of younger writers, newer writers, who look at it, screenwriting, TV writing, as a lottery ticket. A lot of what? A lottery ticket. Oh, a lottery they ticket. They write it, and then it's like, this is my ticket to fame and fortune. <laughs> yeah. It's not, they're not doing it because they have stories to tell, but, you know. I mean, right. everyone has a story to tell, right. but they don't have the love, the passion for the storytelling. Yeah. It's really about, okay, I've got an idea of this cop show. It'd be great. Then so they just slap it out, and it's not really about the writing. It's not about the passion for storytelling. It's right. about, okay, where do, I, where do I turn this in so I can get my money? Right. You know, everybody has those ideas, especially in this town. <laughs> right. You can't, you can't check out at a grocery store without the cashier and the bag boy telling you, you know, I've got an idea. Right. So it's great to, you know, passion is important. And it's great to be, that to be emphasized. Yeah. <clears throat> um, now, you've been a showrunner and an EP right. basically since you started working in television with uh, Mercy Point. Yeah, although major caveat there because... And I was just talking to somebody in a meeting this morning about this. Like, when you talk about winning lotteries, right. like that's like a that's the equivalent of a sure. Powerball win, right? Absolutely. The first pilot I wrote went to series. Right. Uh, I, you know, through a series, they, the studio and the network at the time paired me with a, an established showrunner, and then uh, for a series of reasons I, I won't bore you or your listeners with, uh, fairly early in the process, that person stepped aside. And I was just young and dumb enough to go into the studio at that point and say, <laughs> I got this. Right. And they were bleeding just enough money to say, okay, you got this. <laughs> but to be clear, I had no idea what I was doing, okay? No idea. And, you know, this actually happens, you know, with 409 scripted shows on the air right now. And, and uh, from, from most accounts, uh, a shortage of showrunners right yeah, now. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is happening with Hold increasing on. frequency. Yeah, the yeah. same sort of scenario where somebody writes something and it gets picked up the series and they don't know what they're doing. Right. Um, so, so I just want to be clear. <laughs> when I got my first start, I had no earthly idea what I was doing. It took me a while of sort of, you know, going back. And, you know, I, I've often said, too, that the greatest, uh, uh, beyond all the friends uh, 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 that I made in the process, six years and 130 episodes of CSI New York was the ultimate showrunner training school. Uh, and to the great credit of the extremely creative and powerful women who ran each one of the shows in that empire, in right. that franchise, mm -hmm. it was a part of the culture of that show that that uh, it was such that even a baby staff writer coming in first time would be told to go produce their episode and just shoved into the deep end. Right. And it was a sink or swim model. And if you swim, then not only did you keep your job and impress the right people, but more importantly, you learned. And you learned quickly. It was like language immersion, you know? Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, it took me a little while to learn everything I should have known when Mercy Point got picked up, but <laughs> now I can confidently tell you I, I have some vague idea of what I'm doing. <laughs> well, that's great, because that actually was my next question. Uh -huh. It actually was the question that I was, was asking, was, yeah, what are some of the producerial duties that, you know, writer-producers are asked to have or learn TV? It's one of my... Uh, <clears throat> it's one of my favorite aspects of, the, of my job, is, is that uh, it's wildly unpredictable, mm -hmm. and every day is a new adventure. And usually, every day is a series of new adventures. Sure. 
Um, so it really runs the gamut, you know? It's, it's everything from, I've got to fix this scene. The scene isn't working on the page. Right. Either because I instinctively feel it's not working or because the studio or the network thinks it isn't working. And I either have to figure out how to fix it or how not to ruin it. Right? <laughs> um, so there's that. There's that whole series of concerns, which are obviously first and foremost for any writer producer. But then it's everything from, you know, the decisions like I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Do you want the red Trans Am or the white Trans Am? Uh, and if so, be prepared to defend that decision. Right. Uh, if the red one costs inevitably more than the white one. Uh, but it's also, you know, working directly with actors and the cast, you know, to help them wrap their heads around, you know, this latest crack pipe dream you've put on, on <laughs> paper, you know, uh, uh, helping them understand where they were before this, mm -hmm. you know, often, and I feel for actors, especially in, when it comes to, uh, to a lot of dramas now, which will often do a lot of double ups in their production schedules, where on, a, on an average day, an actor might not really know what episode they're in. Right. Like they're literally going back and forth from one to the next. So to be there, to work with the director, to, to help you know, f uh, explain and, and, and walk an actor through how they got where they are in this moment mm -hmm. uh, is key. You know? Again, um, going on location scouts and trying to, you know, trying to put on sort of a responsible producer's hat, trying to, trying to recognize which I think comes with experience. Right. I'm trying to recognize uh, the inherent responsibility that you have. When you type the words, the fleet sails, or the aliens invade, right. a whole series of <laughs> skilled professionals, you've just laid a puzzle in front of them. Sure. And they have to figure out how to come even remotely close to what that vision you've right. shared with them is. And you, but you don't get to just dump it off in front of them and say, you figured it out. Right. When you're producing a show, you are an active participant in that process. You are the one who's having to explain the movie in your head and help translate it. You're also the one who's having to accept the compromises as they come along, you know, either for budgetary reasons or scheduling reasons or whatever the case may be, and there's all sorts of factors that come into play, you're the person who then has to try and think on your feet and figure out, okay, I thought I wanted the aliens to invade, or I thought I wanted the fleet to sail, but do I really need that right. for the story? Or is there another way to tell the same story that allows me to use this location, or this car, or make my day right you know right. so you're you're uh, you're the decision maker and that's uh, it's a it's a whole different skill set absolutely but it is and it isn't because you were the decision maker on the page that's true too and you had to be flexible with yourself creatively and you know you, at some point you had to realize well I can't I, no I can't do a script that's 75 pages long, it needs to be 54 pages long. Right. So I've already had to make compromises, I've already had to make creative decisions. And that process doesn't stop until it airs. Right. You know? So, a moving train, uh, right? Yeah. So. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about your latest project, Rush Hour. And obviously, you are working on it. Blake McCormick and mm -hmm. Bill Lawrence. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I can figure out what it's about based on, you know, the move, the Brett Ratner, Jackie Chan, mm -hmm. Chris, uh, Tucker franchise films. Um, but for those who may have not seen Rush Hour, any of the films, maybe you should explain quickly what the series is about. Wow. Okay. So, uh, Rush Hour is a series of three extremely successful films that Warner Brothers released. They're action comedies about uh, two very ill-suited partners. Uh, <laughs> Detective Carter from Mean Streets of Los Angeles and Detective Lee who hails from Hong Kong. And it's about how a series, the films were originally about how a series of circumstances bond these two men together as partners and friends serving on the LAPD here. And so there's a, 
There's a lot of cross-cultural humor mined from it, a lot of fish-out-of-water humor mined from it, uh, and some of the greatest action that's been put on screen in the last 30, 40 years. Um, so that was the film franchise. The, the television series exists in that same universe um, and essentially uses the same basic character dynamics uh, to frame a series version of that story. Uh, we have a new Detective Carter and a new Detective Lee uh, who are, to be clear, you know, Justin Hires, a brilliant uh, uh, African-American stand-up comedian mm -hmm. uh, who's been in a number of different films. This is a, a first big TV break for him. One of the funniest guys I've ever been in a room with uh, is playing a Detective Carter role not to be clear at all, trying to play, he's not doing a Chris Tucker impersonation. He's bringing his own unique skill set to the role. Um, same is true of John Fu, who, a uh, brilliant martial artist, probably the most skilled stuntman martial artist I've ever been in a room with, much less seen render those impressive services on film, uh, you know, uh, trained uh, uh, under Jackie Chan in Hong Kong, like just a, I mean, I've seen this guy do things that, you know, would make your average production insurance executive faint. Right. Uh, just really tremendous. Um, and he's playing the Detective Lee role, not to be confused with Jackie Chan, because sure. there's only one Jackie Chan. Right. But he is his own impressive entity, and the two of them have great chemistry. We have been very true to the spirit of the films in that they're funny mm -hmm. without being mean, if that, if that uh, doesn't sound too, you know, uh, schmaltzy. Uh, but they're funny, they are, um, these are characters that you you want to come back and hang out with. You know, also some other amazingly skilled talent, Amy Garcia, Paige Kennedy, who's a big, huge YouTube and Instagram and Vine star that I think my kids were the first one to recognize. They're like, Dad, you know who that is? I was like, yeah. Um, Wendy Malick, of course, who's a veteran of many, many comedies and dramas for that matter. Just some really, really skilled talent telling these, you know, action comedy driven stories. and. I think it's a really, it represents a great opportunity for CBS, you know, there's, there's a number of reasons why CBS is the most watched network in the world, but uh, one of them is, you know, that they have built this tremendous tradition of, of creating these crime procedurals that people love to watch, you know, these mysteries of the week, these, uh, you know, question mark over a body sort of whodunit mysteries, um, uh, you know, this one this one scratches that itch, which makes it sort of, in many respects, classically CBS, but it also takes the network somewhere new. Uh, it's, it's really funny. You still believe them as cops, right? Uh, and you still get emotionally invested in what they're investigating, right? but you're laughing your ass off while you're doing it. And then when you're not laughing or being thrilled and chilled, you are getting caught up in some of easily the most impressive action I've ever seen choreographed on television. Uh, Jeff Wolf is our Emmy-winning stunt coordinator. I worked with him on Revolution before, and the stuff that we have done this first season of the show, I've never seen on television. Yeah, I mean, I saw the, uh, the, the trailer for the, yeah. the pilot, and it looked like a movie. Yeah. You know, the way they you, all do. You know, it looked like a much bigger budget. I'm like, I wonder if they just spent the money and did this for the well, pilot. Well, look, that tends to be the sure, case absolutely. in most shows. There's always a little front loading in the pilot, but I can tell you, having seen all 13, right. we're, we're pretty consistent in, okay. in that level of action. So I think, I think there's, I, you know, I'm hopeful that people are really going to tune in on uh, Thursday, March 31st at 10 p.m. Yeah. And, uh, and, and check it out because it's, it's an enjoyable ride. And I also think that. This is a good time for it. You know, I'm a, I love television, and, and I love, in particular, some of the, <laughs> the darker, more intense, uh, you know, premium cable fare. Um, but, but there are times when, I don't know if you feel this way, but there, I do, there are times when, if I watch a, enough of it, I start to feel really crappy about myself and the state of the world. <laughs> right. You know, some of that darkness starts to rub off a little bit. And it's great because I love being moved and challenged by stories that way. But I also sometimes like to check my brain a little bit and just have fun. Right. You know? And uh, 
get on a get on a theme park ride and you know squeal like a kid. Absolutely. And uh, and I think I think that's why maybe it's it's good that the features sort of took a break for a little while, and I think we're back into a zone now where it's not the worst thing in the world to to enjoy 42 minutes of escape. Absolutely. Every once in a while, so. Hopefully that's where we will succeed. Absolutely. I mean, some of my favorite shows of all time are, you know, shows like Breaking Bad or oh, The yeah. Wire, but then yeah. I also love like 30 Rock and Arrested yeah. Development. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> um, so that bleeds into our next question. Is I always ask to like I always like to ask TV writers and producers what you're watching. What's on your DVR? What is can't miss? Because I know you <clears> sure you have a bunch of stuff piled up that you have to yeah. watch or that you want to watch. What is it that you have to watch right. those few shows that you well seen. I hope this won't be disappointing in any way shape or form uh, and I, I, I do my best to keep up with you know all of what's current and hot and interesting and so I've any one of those you can mention I've seen and probably have an opinion on and sure. probably share your opinion on. but uh, in the same way that I don't know if every writer feels this way but I certainly do when I spend most of my days writing, um, then when it comes time for a little me time, right. for example, if I'm going to do some reading, I tend to prefer nonfiction. Gotcha. I want to steep myself in history. Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, I want to read some interesting, in-depth examination of popcorn or <laughs> bacon, whatever right. it is. Like, yeah. I, I like to. Uh, I, I, I like to research, and so I tend to favor that kind of reading to sort of recharge my batteries. And I think to a certain extent, I do the same thing with television. So when you ask me what's the thing I cannot miss, I will tell you that I am most excited that uh, I don't know when this podcast is going to run, so it will probably be late by the time I make this announcement, but tonight is the premiere of the new season of The Carbonaro Effect. This is my favorite show on television. Okay. okay. Uh, this, Please explain. This is a reality series, if it's even fair to use that descriptive, <coughs> that was created by a brilliant improvisational comedian and magician named Michael Carbonaro. Mm -hmm. My sons introduced me to this show, and I became such a fast convert that in my first day in the writer's room right. on Rush Hour, I told all the other writers, you got to watch the Carbonaro effect. Mm -hmm. They became immediate converts. Then we got Michael Carbonaro to come <laughs> and do a guest stint on the show because we were all wow. so in love with him. My, the Carbonaro effect, simply put, is like a, a, a hybrid cross between Candid Camera right. and a, a, a David Blaine magic act. Okay. In that Carbonaro is a brilliantly skilled magician, usually up close, sleight of hand. Mm -hmm sorts of magic, who then assumes different roles in average day-to-day -day life situations, working behind the counter at a grocery store, working at a car wash. Uh, in each case, those locations are loaded with hidden cameras everywhere. And what he is doing is taking age-old sleight-of-hand tricks that we've all seen in varying forms for a hundred years. But he is blowing off the dust and making them completely new again by virtue of the fact that he is presenting them completely out of context. So that the unwitting people who are being subjected to this magic right. have no idea that they're being taped or that they're unwitting participants in a magic trick. Right. It's true. And what this does is it becomes this brilliant sociological experiment because when people are experiencing something that mystifies them or that they can't explain, right. but they don't know that they're being tricked, right, right, right. then there's really only a couple of ways you can react. <laughs> right. You're either terrified slash enchanted because right. you don't know why this is happening at the car wash, right, or it makes no sense to you, so you refuse it. Right. <laughs> and you, you angrily deny right. that it's happening before your eyes. Right. It's brilliant. And he, he, he's not only a skilled magician, but he has, like I said, this great improvisational uh, comedy edge to his performance. So, you know, ultimately all these people wind up knowing that they're, you know, they wind up in on the trick. But sure. it's, 
endlessly enjoyable. You gotta get those releases signed. Carbonaro effect. <laughs> and where can one watch this show? Uh, I believe it's on True TV, which is a network okay. I hadn't even heard of until Carbonaro effect. Sure. Uh, it's not to be missed. Really, really, really I'll good. I'll have to look it up when I get home. <laughs> um, and lastly, <clears throat> um, do you have any advice? Or you've given us plenty of advice, but yeah. what is your final advice? for aspiring screenwriters, or is there anything else you want to let them know or tell them or share? Sure. Uh, it's usually what I save till the last night of class every semester at USC, mm -hmm. and that is to remind young writers that uh, as much as it's important for them to keep writing, write, 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 keep putting new material into the pipeline, you get better each time. You reach more people each time. You increase your chances of success exponentially. Keep writing. As important as that is, and as important as developing your people skills are, you know, learning to play well with others, learning to collaborate, uh, being open and flexible to other people's ideas, you know, recognizing that great ideas can come from anywhere, whether it's a PA or it's the showrunner. Mm -hmm. The best idea wins. You know, being working on those people skills all important. I think the third. Maybe in, in some some moments, most critical piece of advice I would give is that uh, this whole business of trying to build a career in entertainment is a persistence game. Right. Uh, it requires, uh, by most people's estimation, an almost insane level of confidence, and uh, and and most definitely blind faith optimism. You, you have to say to yourself again and again and again, I'm going to get my chance. My moment is coming. I'm going to work as hard as I can until that moment happens, and then I'll keep working beyond that. But uh, that kind of persistence is key. You know, we've all heard the old Dorothy Parker quote about it. it took me five years to become an overnight success. I think it's been attributed and reattributed to other people along the right. way. And all the five it's true. years to ten years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all true, but, but you know, uh, it's really a necessary ingredient, I think, in, in any successful person's career in entertainment. It's just, you will get your chance. And, and I've seen it happen time and time again. The moment you give up is the same moment someone steps over you on their way up the red carpet. So, stick with it. That stick-to-itiveness is is key, and uh, it may be the same of other industries. I can't speak to them, but I certainly know of the entertainment business, along with the hard work, and along with you know being a good being a good person and the passion, which is with, you know with the passion and uh, and the collaboration, all of that. Yeah. The persistence, yeah. the persistence is key. That's great. You can follow Trey on Twitter. Yes, at Trey Calloway. We'll have a link on the site, of course, as usual. Um, and for more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsinscribes.com. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsinscribes.com or just send us a tweet at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there. Just at scriptscribes. Thank you so much for coming on today. Trey. Thank you for having me, and uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, and thank you all for listening.